All right, well then we will uh, get going with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 again. We'll keep going here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And we talked uh, last time as, as we worked through this uh, about um, some of the loaded language here, um, that, that uh, especially today, slave has a lot of other meaning. And we went through um, a lot of the historical differences. We, we recognized that um, when, when there was slavery in biblical times, it didn't carry all of the connotations of abuse, of neglect. We, we talked about the fact that um, slaves often earned their freedom by hard work, by being good at their jobs, that uh, slaves often held high socioeconomic positions, that they were members of the family with where, which people loved and cared for deeply. Um, we, we treated it almost more like how we would treat blue-collar workers today. Um, but it didn't actually fix anything because the issue at hand with, with slavery is, is not just that there is abuse when you put any two sinners in a room together, but it's the idea that, that somebody would be property. It's the idea that you wouldn't be free and this is one of those things where we can't back away from it because it's, it's very much tied to the heart of what the gospel is. Remember, we, we looked into the idea of Jesus' word saying anybody who commits a sin is a slave to sin. That nobody is truly as free as they would like to be and that, that thing inside of us that wants to be free, that wants to be owned by no one or nothing is, is idolatry. Um, that I want to have nobody to lord over me. I want to have nobody to tell me what to do. I want to have nobody to, to make rules for me. That's, that's a first commandment issue. And it ultimately directly relates to how we deal with God. And we also recognize then that um, the gospel doesn't make us free to do whatever we want. But in fact, to be free from sin is then to become a slave of Christ. And this even falls into our catechism that we were purchased and won not with gold or silver, but with his holy and precious blood and his innocent suffering and death, that we may be his own. We're still talking about property. We belong to God. This is one of those really offensive parts of of the gospel, is that Jesus doesn't want to um, teach you the right way to live, that you can have everything that you want and be bound to nothing. Be really rich so you'll be the boss and nobody else will be your boss. Jesus died and rose to free you from captivity that you might... Be his. The joy is that that works out well for us, but at the same time, um, it, it, it's something that we can't escape when we deal with this word slavery. It's, it's, um, it, it's tied right to the heart of, of the idea that, well, God wants to not grant us freedom to do whatever we want, but to, to name us his. It's just how does he treat us? He treats the slave as a child. And this changes then even how we see each other. I want to go to 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. 
when we recognize who we are in relation to God, it changes how we start to see who we are in relation to each other. In other words, um, I don't recognize myself when I look in the mirror based on my power, my independence, my wealth, how many people I boss around. How do I look at myself when I look in the mirror? Purchased and won. Not with gold or silver, but with the holy and precious blood, the innocent suffering and death. When we look in the mirror, we don't see our works, but we see the works that Christ has put on us in the waters of baptism. And so, on one hand, that's, that's wonderful. Because then I can finally be honest about the fact that I'm not nearly as important as I'd like to think that I am. And I can finally be honest that I'm not nearly as wealthy as I think I should be. And I, I'm, I don't have all of the things that 15-year-old me imagined when he thought he would grow up. But at the same time, I'm holy. I'm loved. I'm worth a whole lot more than any of those things could ever buy because I'm not worth the sum of works and the sum of money and the sum of bossing people around. I am worth the death of God. That's a priceless treasure. And on the other hand, that means then that I would stop trying to find my worth in these things and maybe even my neighbor as well. Are you with me on that? In other words, if you look in the mirror and you recognize that you are loved by God, not because of what you have done, but because he has bought you with his own suffering and death, and he's done that for your neighbor, well, then how should we look at our neighbor? The same way. And this is where Christianity starts to transcend culture, starts to transcend class. And this is why you see Paul directly addressing both slaves and masters, both children and parents. To him, it it doesn't fit into the the social niceties that we would deal with Christianity according to what we've earned. Because if we deal with it purely according to what we've earned, we talk to the parents and ignore the children. We talk to the masters and ignore the slaves. We are concerned with the important people, right? And so when I was working in a movie theater um, and I was just scrubbing the concession stand and the district manager walked in, he, as long as the concession stand was clean and he didn't have anybody to yell at, he ignored me. And that was as it should be. Because if he was paying attention to me, it was probably because something needed to get done, and it was going to go bad for me, right? But here, here you see um, Paul using this language that, that we would abhor, but he addresses it in a way where we can recognize a couple of things at the same time. First, that this person is so important that they are worthy of every bit the attention as anyone else in the whole wide world. They are worth something. And so much so then that, that um, Paul talks about slavery as, as we recognize that we will be slaves to God. How we deal with each other, it matters. And so there's um, a, a slave um, by the name of Philemon who Paul counsels to his master, you know, you should maybe think about freeing this guy. There, there's more going on here. We're not going to insist on it. We're not going to say that only people who are free can be Christians because Christianity can be for all people, of all classes, of all races, of all genders. This is where everything starts to dissolve. Not that there is a great equalizer, but that we recognize that Christ is for all. And that's one of the harder parts about vocation is we don't pretend that there's no such thing as subordination. We just got done with that chapter, right? And so who's in charge, the parents or the kids? If the kids were in charge, how would that go? Good, good, yeah. Um, does that mean the children are worthless? Less important, less holy, less godly, less worthy of love or honor or respect or goodwill or good work? No, it just means that for good order, God has said, yeah, we're going to have the adults in charge. 
in the same way when we start to deal with this. We can recognize that when we deal, especially today, because praise God, we don't deal with, with slavery today the way that, that sadly we, we have in the past in our country. But still, we deal with, with bosses. We deal with people who we, we simply must admit are above us in station, who get to boss us around. Every last one of us is a bossed around by somebody, right? How do we look at them and how do we expect them to look at us? Because Christianity has something to say to those relationships. How do we look at a boss? We recognize that this is somebody that God died for, that this is somebody that God is working through, and that to serve them is, well, then if if God is working through them, to serve them is to serve God. And in the same way, when we deal with, with those who we would be in charge of, it's not about us anymore, is it? Who is it about? It's still about God. It's still about what God would have to say about this person. And so um, as we shift over into um, the next part of this, um, we'll start to see how Paul would call masters to to view their slaves, not as property, not as somebody to be abused, not as somebody to be beaten, not as somebody even to be looked down upon, but as somebody to be loved and and cherished, even inside of this vocation. Um, But at the same time, we're never going to let go of this idea of of suffering. Suffering has something to do with Christianity. Um, It's sort of built into our symbol, right? So let's go to 1 Peter 2.21. 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in his example, so that you might follow in his steps. What are Christians called to do? Yeah, but more specifically, follow in Christ's steps, not just behave, not just love everybody. Huh? Serve others by, by what? Because there's this word that we don't want to acknowledge. We are to suffer for other people. How did Christ serve you? He suffered for you. How are we to serve our neighbor? We're to suffer for that. Is that fair? No. Not even remotely fair. Like, really, why was it fair that God would suffer because you did bad stuff? He became sin. Was that fair for him? No. Um, Christianity is is profoundly unfair. We are not concerned with fairness. We're concerned with love. If you want to be concerned with fair, you are never going to find it. You're going to be bitter all the time. That's when one kid won't shut up in class and the whole class gets punished and it's not fair at all. Okay. You really want... We want to make good choices. That's right, buddy. Um, When we deal with Christianity, though, we we set aside this notion that God would deal with us according to what's fair. That's called the law. The law was nailed to the cross. Not in an act of, of, of chiefly concerned with fairness towards you, but in terms of justice. Sin would be punished. You would be rewarded for Christ's good deeds. That's love. When we deal then with our neighbor... In the same way, when you're called to suffer for them, is it always fair? No. So this is something then that we can actually deal with, especially today where we have these questions of privilege, when we have these questions of of just the, the, 
the simple reality that um, to be born in this country is to be born with rights and, and privileges that, that most people in the world throughout time and history have not had. To make more than $30,000 a year is to be in the 1% of earners in the entire world. Um, to, to be able to, to travel the way that we travel, buy the things we buy, even just go the places we go without question. It's not fair. Can we acknowledge that? Like, nobody wants to because that, that, that somehow seems unjust that, that we have to find this great way to level everything. But here Christianity says it's never been about what's fair. It's been about suffering to serve your neighbor. And that means embracing your vocation, not for your own good, but for the good of those around you. And so, if you really became a parent because you thought that your life would get easier, surprise. Um, and, and for that matter, though, if you really had a neighbor and you were only concerned about your neighbor making your life better, surprise, um, to vote, to be a citizen, to be a worker, in all of the places where we find ourselves, to be a child, um, it, it's never been about what's fair. It's actually been about the good of your neighbor. Because we deal with them then not simply as, well, I guess we have to pay Christ back for his suffering for us, but if Christ is in that person and working through that person and we love this God, well then... What a joy that that God can be served by serving our neighbor. Are you with me on that? We simply recognize the fact that if, if our religion is based on the fact that God would be unpunished, unfairly punished for our sins, we're not super concerned with fair. And so we recognize that life is unfair. And we don't think that we can somehow eradicate that. Instead, we work inside of that system to serve those around us. Because you have been given things that other people have not. And you can serve them. And in some places, you'll be on the short end of the stick. And that doesn't somehow free you from the obligation to, to serve your masters as well. And so you can, you can say, well, I've had bad bosses. I, I remember scrubbing dirty popcorn machines while they went outside and smoked cigarettes. And then yelled at me for it. And, and at the same time, we recognize two things. One, that's not fair. But at the same time, is God it? work to make that person holy and worthy of love, not based on their works, but simply based on his sacrifice. Well, then if they really are what God says they are, I'm not going to sit there and whine, or at least maybe I ought not. Right? This is, this is the, the thing that we have trouble with inside of vocation, is we really want to balance the playing field. And so I'm not a great dad, but I'm as good as they deserve because they don't stop talking back. Or I, I'm, I'm not a great worker, but honestly, they don't pay me enough. Um, and we try our best to sort of level our works versus what other people deserve. According to this, what do other people deserve? They're worth the death of God, more than you got to offer. So instead, see God in them, because God bought them. And, and at least recognize there that God is at work to bless these things which he has put you inside of because he puts you inside of there as your vocation. In other words, it's not about whether or not you're a good enough father. It's about whether or not God says being a father is good. It's not about whether or not you earn your paycheck by doing enough work. It's whether or not God said it's good to have work. And he does say it's good to have work. So inside of that, then he has said, I will bless whatever is going on here. It's going to be messy. It's going to be ugly because it's nothing but sinners working here. But at the same time, will God work in there? If God's in there, rejoice because you get to work with God. Are you kind of with me on this? Yeah. Do you have questions? Yeah.
There, there's something that's radically unfair when we start to deal in terms of love. Um, it, it's beautifully unfair because we deal with love. It, it's not about who earns the most dinner at our dinner table, is it? Why? My kids get to eat, and I get to see them happy. And I love them, and so that's a joy. And they don't have to worry about ever getting fed based on working hard enough here because they know that I love them. It's easier in the home, which is why we started there. Remember, we started with parents and children. When we go into the workplace, it gets harder. Why? Good. We're all adults here, for one. And um, not everybody decides to act like an adult. Honestly, I love my kids more than I love other people. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of that fact, either. Um, so, so that compounds it, too. For some reason, we're willing to overlook a whole lot more. Love covers a multitude of sins in the home that it doesn't always cover other places. What if we actually found, again, God at work there? Would it make it easier? At least hypothetically. Right, this is somebody that God has some concern with. And this is the verse. This is what it says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. We actually recognize that Christ is is involved in this thing. It's not serve your masters as if you were serving Christ. But it's because you are serving Christ, because Christ is in this room, because Christ is working through your masters, serve them. Um. It's, it's a, a question of, is the gospel only for you, or is it even for the people who you're annoyed with at any particular point in time? And if you're willing to say that Christ died for all, um, this is actually how we start to see it. Because I can say, all right, I can't say that out loud or I will get fired. Um, and, and that manages to put a few things in line, right? But at the same time, the greater relationship is actually born of mutual respect of love, right? When sinners ruin that, we let Christ's blood cover that. That's always the religion. Here we actually start to put it into practice. So in the same way that we wake up in the morning and we make the sign of the cross to remember that we're baptized, that we're holy, that we're washed in the blood of Christ, we can actually look then at our parents who are sinners and say, they're holy, they're washed in the blood of Christ. We can look at our bosses and say, they're holy. They are washed and in, 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 they are paid for by the death of Christ. Are, are you with me on this? And that changes the shape of the work. That's, that's the next verse, Ephesians 6.6. 6. Um, when, we, when, we, when we serve those um, who have been placed above us, it says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So not, not just outwardly, but but of the heart. And this is something the gospel makes big distinctions of all the way through. So we can go to Luke 18, 9 to 14, which is um, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 9 to 14. 
Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his own breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Which one looked better outwardly? The Pharisee. Which one cared about looking better outwardly more? Very much the Pharisee. So much so that um, this is why we love it when other people look bad. When other people look bad, it only helps us. Why? Right. I mean, it's all about what you're grading the scale on, because everybody wants to be graded on a curve, all right? And so, um, you know what? I'm perfectly content to preach a sermon next to a guy who I know can't preach. I, I, I'm, I'm perfectly content um, to say that I, I maybe don't perfectly obey the fourth commandment, but, um, you know, let's, let's compare me to, and then I'll grab my sister and lay, like, lay out all her dirty laundry. How sinful of me. How shameful that I must see somebody else pushed down simply so I can stand six inches higher and still can't actually reach up to heaven. If this is really going to be how it's going to go, well, of course you're not going home justified. One of them, though, had a, a godly heart. The tax collector, who though he didn't look like much and he was hated by all, his was simply this, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What's mercy? Can you buy mercy? Mercy is a free gift. It, it comes from outside of self. It, it comes from God. So the Pharisee was bought then, given a free gift of grace, right? Even though he was a sinner? Or excuse me, not the Pharisee, the tax collector. Good. Um, I want to go one more. Uh, Matthew 6, 2-4. Jesus' own words. Matthew 6, 2-4. Jesus said, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have already received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, as your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, um, we recognize that there will be good works done no matter what, right? He says, when you give to the needy, which is a given. When you take out the trash means it will be done. It's just it's going to be done in a particular way. Don't do it wrong this time. Um, when you give to the needy, it recognizes, yes, of course we all love our neighbor. Of course we're to serve our neighbor. Um, but we do it not for attention, not for the sake of earthly reward, but for not even for the, yeah, for the good of our neighbor and for the joy of doing the will of God. For the joy that God actually wants to see these people taken care of. And you get to be a part of that. Like, this is the, the, the beauty of, of um, having God in control of this thing and not us. And so we can take a look at just insurmountable problems. And I can say, look, look, there, there, there's never going to be a cure for world hunger that I can achieve. So why even try? Everybody should just try harder. And we can say, you may not be able to cure world hunger, but at the same time, does God want there to be this guy starving right here when you have extra food? Well, then don't worry about world hunger. That's God's problem. You worry about that guy because God gave you that guy. 
and rejoice because God wants to see that guy fed and he loves you so much that he would actually give you a piece in that pie. So when you give to the needy, rejoice. Are you with me here? And so we have, let not the right hand know what the left hand is doing. Why? Right. It's a question whether or not God wants to see this thing taken care of. Um, it's a question of whether or not this guy could use a little bit of help. And so here, even um, inside of the church, then, that, that changes the practice because we recognize there is money involved in the church. It, it's always been that way. It always will be that way. God didn't have a problem with money in the church. He had a problem with idolatry in the church. He had a problem with profiteering in the church. Um, he had a problem with the left hand knowing what the right hand is, is doing. And so... Um, we deal with tithes here in a very specific way. I don't know what anybody gives. I refuse to know. I refuse to handle the money. How come? Because you probably don't want me to know. You probably just want to see God's kingdom supported. And if you really want me to know, we've got a bigger problem. Because what, do I, what am I going to give to you for this? Is it really worth my praise? Who am I? And what's worse... I might become a people pleaser. You don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. There are churches that publish offerings, which is sin. It, it, it's sin. Because it's only done for one purpose. How can I make you more of a people pleaser? How can I make you more of um, work in the way of eye service, according to Paul's language here? In other words, how do I make sure that you're not at the bottom of the list so that everybody glares at you? You want to be comfortably in the middle. If you're not going to win this thing, at least be comfortably in the middle. I'm serious. Like, that was me running track. I was never going to win, so I just didn't want to be the last one. I'm just saying. We don't do that here because we recognize the fact that simply this. Um, look, the church wasn't founded on money. The church was founded on the forgiveness of sins, but that's easier when we actually have a building that keeps the rain off our heads, and so we do need a building. Um, that's easier when we have a pastor who actually gets to be a pastor all the time, and so we, we make sure that he doesn't have to ha- have another job so that when we need him, he's not busy doing other work. We, we, we set aside um, arts, um, even, for the sake that when we come into church, we might recognize some of the stuff that's happening up here. And what a joy to participate in that. Not for praise, not for people pleasing, but, but simply the fact that we recognize that these are good things to be done, and God would actually let us be a part of it, according to our vocations. Are, are you with me on this? If you want to do it just for attention, well... You're worried more about yourself than about the guy you should be working for, your neighbor. Um, we'll go to 1 Corinthians 7, 11 to 24. 1 Corinthians 7, 11 to 24. That's not right. I'll try 17 to 24. Yeah. Uh, 17 to 24. When we let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, in which God has called him, this is my rule in all the churches. 
was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when you called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. In other words, and Paul's explicit here. If you can avail of your freedom, do it. Great. Awesome. That, that's wonderful. But don't think less of yourself because you're a slave. Because you were bought with a price. You were bought with the death of God. Don't think less of yourself, whatever you are. This is the beauty of the gospel. Don't think less of yourself because of your station. Don't think that I will be a Christian, but I'll be a real good Christian if I can somehow be richer than the other Christians, or at least the rest of the world. Don't think, if I'm really, really serving God, I'll be an elder in the church. I'll be bossing people around, and I'll be in all the secret meetings so that I'll know all the stuff that's happening before it happens. Then, then I'll be a real Christian. No. Recognize that God loves you so much, no matter what anybody else would say to you, that you are worth all of the, the kingdom of God, all that he has to, to, to give, all that he can pay, his own life, and, and there rejoice. If you move up in station, fine, but you know, you're not better or worse for it in the eyes of God. He loves you just as much the same. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Um, this this obsession we have with independence, with, with freedom, it's ultimately idolatry. This, this obsession that we have with, with self-esteem is, is ultimately rooted in a false law. Because again, that, that my self-esteem tends to get better when other people do worse. That says a lot more about me than it does about them, though. Instead, we find identity in, in Christ, and if your value is there, if you recognize yourself as holy because Christ has given it to you, of course it leads to a willing spirit. It, it, in other words, let's go Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How does the good stuff get done? Because you decided to or something else? Not just through the will of God, but through even the work of God. Who is, it's his will, but what's working in us? The Holy Spirit. This is called sanctification. God making you holy. God doing holy things through you. Um, If this is the case, what has to come first? The identity in Christ or the willing obedience? The identity has to come before the obedience. Why would you be willingly obedient to something that's going to kill you? The law. 
Why would you be willingly obedient to something that says you will never be as free as you want to be? But when you see yourself as loved, as holy, as bought with the, the precious death of God, that does actually change how we start to look at the world. It truly does. It, it changes even how we look at each other. It changes how we look at our stations in life. That changes how we look at the people around us and, and, and how we relate to them inside of those stations. That, that changes absolutely everything. Um, when we recognize identity in Christ first, it helps us deal with everything else around us. Uh, are you with me on that? Yeah? yeah? Yes. Yes? Questions? Comments? I'm glad. All right. Um, let's keep going then. Ephesians 6, 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Um, does God need anything from you? No. Like, what does God need from you that he can't do better himself? I, huh? Nothing. Why did he keep you around then? Because he loves us. And so I can say then, there are certain jobs I can get done faster all by myself. But they're a whole lot more fun when my kids help me. You are my kid. I love you. Yep, that's true. That's true. All right. Um, so Matthew twenty five forty then. We are called to serve God. But it's a question of where God is. Because he doesn't need anything from us. So, Matthew 25, 40. How are we doing with this? The king will answer him, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The question is, does God want anything to do with people you think you're better than? If he most certainly does... Well, then how do you serve God? You serve the people that God loves. Um, as it turns out, um, I, I'm happier to see those I love taken care of than to be taken care of myself. Right? And so when, when my dad is having his heart attack and I'm scared, and I don't want the doctor to stop and explain everything to me and make sure that I'm comfortable with the thing. I want him to fix my dad. And by doing a good job with my dad, I'm served. I am pleased. I am content, right? Because he's the one I care about. Right? Right. Oh, you want to heap praise around, heap it on her. She's worth it anyway. But it makes me happy to see her a part of this, this family, this community. This, this is how you make me overjoyed um when when we do these things it, it, it's it's a joy because we actually not just sort of say all right so god wants me to love this person but god's at work in this person and so to serve this person is to serve god and then you find love and, and joy and happiness and, and the fact that god would be served right there because you love them you love god right are you with me on that questions or comments there He did it for you. 
Um, how do you love somebody who despises God? Well, God managed to. So um, why don't you leave that between God and, and them? Right. And so um, the, the Bible verse is in Romans. <sighs> While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says, for a good person, someone might be willing to die. Christ showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Christ didn't wait for us to love him to die for us. He died for enemies. He died for people who despised him, because we are not neutral in this thing, right? To be born in sin is to, to be born rebellious against God. This was Ephesians chapter 2. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so God, in, in, in his rich mercy with which he loved us, he made us righteous long before we ever chose to love him. And so we recognize then, not simply the, do I recognize in their life the fruits of salvation that I would measure in work, but simply was the price paid? And so, you know, at the end of the day, um, you, you can do it, in a vertical realm, too, just as well. I mean, so if somebody insults your wife, you get mad, right? That, like, that's the line. I, I'll stop being a pastor and start being a husband. Um, but at the same time, when she says, you know what? It's not a big deal. It's, it's forgiven and it's handled. I still have a hard time with that, right? But she's handled it. It's taken care of. It's forgiven. Me making a big deal about it serves what purpose? <laughs> That's just it, actually. It makes myself feel better because I can say, look what I'm doing for you, O Lord. When he's saying, I already took care of that. I died for them. So cool your jets. Um, this, is, this is how we start then to recognize. Because when he says, um, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. He doesn't say, when you've done it to the least of these which have accepted me into their heart and have chosen to be obedient. He talks about even the prisoners. He talks about unjust people. Um, the question is, did God die for the, the elect, or did God die for all the world? Well, then you leave the rest of the world to his judgment, but he paid that price, so clearly he wants them in. Also, he says it over and over and over and over and again throughout the scriptures, I have no desire in the death of the wicked. So, yeah, we, we, if, if you want to measure it in them, you're going to have trouble, right? Because as it turns out, all of us sin, and so, yeah, it's hard to find reasons to love some people. It's just, it really is. Um, but when you measure it in the, in the love that was poured out upon the cross, there it becomes simpler. Does that, that kind of answer you? This is why we actually carry this symbol with us. This is why we wear crucifixes. This is why we carry them. This is why we hang them. Uh, because this is not something that we naturally see when we look at our neighbor. In fact, this is so much hidden from us that like even as God would work, he, it, it's, Luther talked about it as a mask that God wears, vocation. Um, in other words, God, when he wants to do good through me, he dresses up just like me so that when you see me doing good works, who is it, me or God? It's purely God. I couldn't do that. Um, but it looks like me and it sounds like me. God is hidden in that thing. In the same way, um, when, when, we, when we carry this thing forward, we recognize that God isn't always going to be visible in outward works. But he is visible upon the cross. So look there. Again, this is why prayer is, is, is a regular part of Christianity, that we'd be called to pray for our enemies. Because we're not going to figure this thing out on our own that they're loved. So we better go to God's word and see what it has to say about it. And when I'm having a hard time measuring that, I want to look at a cross and see their sins punished. When we, when we have all of these things, this is why God would equip us 
excuse me, not just why, this is how God would equip us to start to handle the things that, that would otherwise very much be detrimental to, to these relationships. Does that kind of answer it? Awesome. Anybody else? Questions or comments here? All right, let's go on to verse 8. Uh, Ephesians 6, 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And there's two ways to look at this. We can look at this in terms of heavenly reward, and we can also look at this in terms of even temporal reward. Um, if, we go to, um, if we go to Luke 6, 32... Luke 6, 32 to 36. Jesus said, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those for whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. I'm going to give you one more verse, and we're going to talk about this. Because Lutherans, we take the Bible at its word, um, even when it makes us uncomfortable. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. Um, where do Lutherans get a little nervous about this? We just got done saying that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. How are you going to tell me that you're rewarded for works and punished for sins? So here's, here's the thing. Um, we recognize that God is smarter than us. Is that a good place to start? I hope. All right, so um, going forward in this, then, we, we hold the Bible at its word, even when we have trouble understanding it. Um, and, and if we recognize that Christ is the, the center of all of this, we can start to tease it out. So first of all, will sins be punished by God? Yes, where were your sins punished by God? On the cross. Is that finished? Let's leave that aside then, Okay. Good works. Why are you saved? Because you've done good? No. Because God's mercy. So by the death of Christ, you were declared righteous and holy and worthy of salvation. But the scripture does also say you'll be rewarded for your good works, right? We just read that twice. It wasn't a typo. There it is. There it is. The works that we do are not us doing it, but God working through us. So what we have here then is, first of all, a handful of truths. One, you are saved not by what you do, but by what God has done for you. That's in the Bible. Your sins were punished by God as the Father punished the Son upon the cross. Your sins are forgiven. Your salvation was procured in your waters of your baptism, the free gift of God. And he loves you so much that even that is not enough. For he will work through you to do, 
to do good works, and then he will turn around and reward you for doing the things that he did through you. You will be rewarded in heaven for your good works. It's all throughout the scriptures. You cannot ignore it. The question is, who's doing that? Again, if, if it is God who works through you and in you to accomplish that which is good, what you have then is a God who loves you so much that not only will he buy your ticket in, but then he'll start actually earning you extras by doing good through you here. Is there heavenly reward for earthly works? Yes, most certainly. What a joy that I don't have to keep track of it because God is the one who's handling all of it. So every time that we, we then have, have as, as God worked through us and in us, loved sinners, forgiven enemies, landed to those who turned around and didn't pay it back. Uh, everything that, that the gospel of Luke laid out, was God at work through you to do that thing? Was God at work to reward you for that thing? Rejoice. You're with me there? All right. There's also temporal rewards. There, there's also earthly ones. Um, Matthew 6, 26 to 30. Because <coughs> heaven's far away. Um, or at least the resurrection is. Excuse me. Heaven's very close. Um, Matthew 6, 26 to 30. Matthew 6, 26 to 30. Where to go? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. So we worry because we feel like the resurrection is way, way far away. And we got all these needs right now. We pray, come Lord Jesus. We hope that it is soon. He says he's coming soon. I don't know what that means. But in the meanwhile, we get very anxious. And so how does our Lord remind us not to be anxious? good. He goes to creation and, and he, he puts you at the pinnacle of it as that which he loves the most. And of course he loves you and he wants to see you cared for. But he also says, look at how it's being done. The birds of the air, they don't gather into barns, but they manage to be fed every day, right? How is it that that happens? Yeah, but how? Because he doesn't just like zap food out there for birds. He's not dropping bird seed from heaven. How do the birds find food all year round? This is the joy of creation, right? God has established something so that these birds could find food in the natural way of things. He doesn't need to drop bird seed from heaven because he's already set it up that simply by participating inside of the creation which he made for us, they would be taken care of. How much more with you? There is, there is a, a, an order built into creation, the way that things ought to go. How come I can stand on this thing even though it's spinning really fast and not fall off, this, this world? 
That's wild. Like, if you think about it, how is it that, that we live in, in a place where I can throw seed into the ground and wait a while and come back and it turns into food? Just so. God has worked that creation for us. Now, that also carries forward in how we deal with each other. In other words, God has established his creation so that um, good consequence comes from good work. So, um, will there be earthly reward for hard work? Ought to be. Now, yes, sin breaks stuff, and sometimes you plant seeds and they just don't grow. And sometimes birds die. And sometimes you work and you don't get paid. Um, But God has has worked, even inside of this fallen creation, to to do a lot, a lot of good things. Um, To recognize just this simple fact that when I fight with my parents every single day after school, life is a lot harder. When I love the people that I'm called to preach to, life is a lot easier. When they love me, things go real well. When we fight, when we war, things go terrible. Take this to your job, to anywhere else. When, when everything goes the way it ought to, when we follow God's law, things tend to go better. When nobody's stealing, nobody's murdering, nobody's bearing false testimony, when, when nobody's coveting, things tend to go better. Um, and yes, I realize that it's not always perfect, but, um, and I don't want to be an optimist here because I'm usually not, and so I don't know why I would try now. I do want to go to Psalm 103, though. Psalm 103.10. Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. In other words, have you ever gotten away with something you probably shouldn't have gotten away with? Again, we're not worried about what's fair here. God in mercy often curbs the damage that sin would do because he loves you too much that he doesn't want to see you destroyed by it. He wants you to learn from it, but he doesn't want to see you destroyed by it. Parents, you do this with, with kids all the time. Um, I, I haven't, mine haven't gotten this big yet, but you see your kid doing something real stupid, and you're like, oh, no, this is going to go awful. And you don't want to like, completely remove them from consequence, right? Because then they're not going to learn anything from it, and they're just going to do it again. You want them to feel it, but you don't want it to destroy them, right? And so you'll help out a little bit, but they're still going to feel it. How much more with with your God? Luther recognizes the fact that the reason that people get away with stuff is um, not because God has turned a blind eye, not because God doesn't love justice, not because God isn't isn't concerned with with you, but because God actually loves us all so much that if everybody got what they deserved for their sin, we would have been wiped out as a civilization, as a people, right there with Adam and Eve. We could have tried it again with Cain and Abel. Cain wasn't put to death, though, was he? He kind of skated on that, didn't he? That's not fair. I'm serious. But why did God then put the mark on Cain? Because he's merciful. He didn't want anybody to kill him. He actually wanted him to be brought into faith. And if it's not going to happen right now, then God, in his mercy, is going to actually, again, curb the effects that sin would have, so much so that that God willing, Cain and Abel would be reunited as, as brothers in the last day that they might stand shoulder to shoulder in the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation because God curbed the damage that sin would do. Um, he, he causes the sun to shine on both the good and the evil alike because 
God loves sinners. And so then when we talk about a temporal reward for this work in this verse, when we say, um, knowing whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free, again, we recognize God gives you gifts not based on what you've earned, but based on that he loves you. And yes, it's ordered into creation. And so when God promises to give you good gifts, very rarely does he just sort of zap you money if you pray hard enough. But he says, look, do your job. There you'll get taken care of. What a joy. Is it going to be perfectly fair? No. That's probably good. Really is. Doesn't feel like that every time. I understand that. But even there, God works to teach you lessons, to teach me lessons. That if you engage in these things, and they hurt a little, and you keep doing it, sometimes they might hurt a lot. God's less concerned with fair than we are. He's concerned with justice, yes. But there, he deals justice to his son for you, in, in, in your stead. And he is concerned with love and mercy. Are you with me on that? Questions or comments there? Yeah. Yeah? Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. All right. If they got it, y'all got it. Um... Let's do one more verse. Um, we'll be taking a break for uh, a couple weeks after this while I get to go on vacation. Um, and so we got a nice clean break if we can finish this. In Ephesians 6, uh, verse 9, Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with them. Um, do the same to them isn't to confuse vocation and to say, like, you know, there is no such thing as, as a parent or a child. There is no such thing as a worker or a boss, a master or a slave. But it, it recognizes that God is inside of these people. And so when we deal with them, we deal with them as if we were dealing with God. That even if we don't like them, we do like God. And God likes them. So let that be between God and them. Are you with me there? We talked about that. To see brothers and sisters in Christ, it, it, it really does eliminate the distaste that goes with subordinate vocation. Um, if we can actually then see each other as, as wholly equal because Christ has paid the same price for me as he paid for you, well then, their racism is sinful. And their classism and sexism, they are sinful. Because... When we start to say, I am worth more than you because I am white male, what we ultimately have to say, well, did Christ die more for white people or for men than he did for women? The answer is most certainly no. If Christ paid the same price for you as, as he did for me, are we equal? Yes. What if your sins are, are greater than, than mine in my sight? First of all, let's... let's cool it with my sight. Let's look to God's. And then, what did God do when he saw both of us sin? He died for all of us. So, when we start there, it gets a lot easier to deal with the fact that life isn't fair. Because we, we start with the benefit of this fact that life isn't fair. The love that, that was poured out in mercy um, that, that starts to, to shape this. 
um, to see the works done inside of vocation as, as God-given and good. It, it means that we don't have to compare who's got the more important job anymore. And so Luther wrote at one point in time that, that a mom changing a dirty diaper in the middle of the night was a holier work before God than all the monks praying in all the monasteries throughout all of time. That, that this thing that God has given you to do, as, as awful and, and, and because you're tired and as gross as, as it might be, this is holy in the sight of the Lord because he was the one who gave you these people and gave you this thing to do. And if you really want to measure this by doing something more important, then you're looking at the wrong thing in the first place. And, well, God didn't give you those things, but he did give you these. So rejoice because he thinks they're pretty important. Otherwise, he wouldn't have you doing them. Are you with me on that? Um, there is no distinction. There is no partiality. Uh, Romans 10, 11 to 17. Romans 10. Eleven to 17. Scripture says, everyone who believes with the mouth and uh, where'd it go? Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, excuse me, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um... So when, when we recognize this, um, we lose the distinction because what matters the most? The people be saved. This is what God wants. And so much so then, when, when he says, um, it's about him. It's about what God love, God's love would buy. It's about what God's will would be. Then everything else sort of disappears into this, this love. So much so that it's not the preacher who matters. It's the word that saves. In other words, God, want every, God wants everybody to be saved. That's going to happen through means. So what does God have to do? He has to send a preacher. But before you go saying that preacher is better than everybody else because look at, at the people saved because of him, you say, stop. His feet are what's beautiful. Why? Not because his feet are beautiful, because they're feet. Um, but because God used those feet to bring about salvation. Why is the preacher amazing? Because God used that sinner to bring about salvation. Why are you amazing? Because God used you as, as a tool, as, as, as he has given you in your vocation to bring this about. There is no distinction because God is working e through each one of us in our respective vocations to accomplish his will. And ultimately, it's his will that, that we say matters. Um, if God was going to, to measure us based on our station, based on how much we do, then we have to say that his love is not enough. But we say, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, not because the feet are beautiful, they're feet. Not because the preacher is special, because he's not. But because God will use that sinner to bring about salvation, and salvation is special. Here we find our role. Here we find where we fit. And we actually do fit. We actually do matter. Whether we be the one serving or the one being served. Because who is there to preach to if there's no congregation? That's not the church if you just have all preachers. If everyone's a minister, you don't have a church. There is no such thing as a church where everyone's a minister. Because the church actually needs somebody to preach and somebody to hear. In the same way, it, it, there's no such thing as, as um, a family where everybody is the husband. And um, there's no such thing as children. The children are the husband. Um, that's weird. 
Like, imagine what that would be like. Or don't, because, whoa. Um, when, when you start to put these things together, we actually find joy that God would locate us inside of these things because here we form something bigger than ourselves. Um, it's, it's that we start to look to the means of grace and, and find joy in that. And so I can say, the peace of the Lord be with you and hold up the bread and the wine. And the means, the means are beautiful because God is using bread and wine to give you his body and blood. You think baptisms are awesome, not just because babies are cute, but because God's family grew that day. You, you love each other, not because you always earn that love, but because God loves you and he would give you each other. And he has promised to work good through you. When you are a means of grace to somebody, you are worthy of, of honor, no matter your station in life. And that's, that's the joy that comes with this. Do you have any questions on that? I'll give you one more verse to kind of paint a picture of it, and then we'll close down then. Uh, Romans 8, 29. Because this is the Bible verse a lot of this is coming from. Uh, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that it might be uh, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That that those whom he loved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, what do you look like? You look like Jesus. That that no matter your station in life, this is the gift given to you in baptism. You look like God. You were conformed to His image. Whatever you were doing, you were conformed to his image because of your vocation, because of, of your baptism, because God would do all of these things for you and through you and in you and, and for your neighbor and through your neighbor and in your neighbor. We are, are brought into something that is, is no longer based on our works, but his mercy, his gift. Any questions or comments there? All right, we'll close down for a few weeks then. Thank you very much. Shall we, uh, shall we praise our Lord has taught us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. 